Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and or back to the Echo Theory Podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this week's episode is going to be a continuation of last week's episode, so if you have not already listened to it, I highly recommend pausing this one and going back to that one. It is episode 13 of season three, titled Beginner's Guide to Positive Reinforcement Horse Training Part One. And this is part two. Haven't decided if I'm going to name it Beginner's Guide or if I'm going to name it something else, but um, I think it, it might be more beneficial to name it something else. But anyway, this episode is going to cover you know, what the difference is between true positive reinforcement is and how you know what's actually motivating your horse, as well as the Lima principle, which I omitted talking about in the first part of this series. And I think it's really important to know about and keep in mind during your training. And also some concepts like that of contra freeloading and touching on things like the poisoned cue. And then we are going to move into talking about the basic behaviors, what you need to do first, where do you go after you've trained the basics and you've got those handy-dandy tools installed, where do we go from here, oh my? And uh, yeah, so I think that we can go ahead and jump on into this bad boy. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, friends, you know the drill. Before we get into it, we have got to do some ads. But before I jump into that, I do want to say, please, dear God, if you're listening on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to the channel so that we can eventually monetize that hoe, okay? Thanks. <laughs> before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder how I can support Jill and her horses and this wonderful, amazing, incredible podcast that I love so much or had a training question or a behavior related question and just wanted to talk to another horse nerd about your things? Well, boy, oh boy, do I have the solution for you. If you're willing and able, please check us out at Equitheory on your Patreon app or at patreon.com slash Equitheory. When you become a patron, you will have access to different perks and benefits depending on which tier you choose. At the $5 tier, you can ask that burning question that's been gnawing at you for the past week, and I'll answer it right here on the podcast. Additionally, at this tier and every tier beyond, you will have access to our very own online community full of fellow horse nerds. At the $10 
$1 tier, which is my personal favorite, you can ask any and as many questions as you like. Plus, you get to join in on the monthly live Q&A events that we do, and you get all your questions answered in real time. Then we have some options for higher level tiers where you have access to phone call consults with me in which you can either choose to make them private or help me make an episode for the podcast and we can publish it together. And then you'll have access to your question and my answer forever. Um, But at the highest, the very, the very highest, the veriest highest, (laughs) you have an option where you can send me videos and footage of you working with your horse and I'll review it, send you notes, recommendations, and everything in between. Um, Do note that Patreon works on a recurring monthly payment system, but you can cancel at any time. And it's still way cheaper than one to two lessons a week at like $45 each. And that adds up real quick. So monthly payment for lots of training. (laughs) And if you can't support us on Patreon, no worries at all whatsoever. Listening is more than enough. And hopefully the podcast will help you with your training anyway. Uh, The last way that you can support us is through merch, which is fun for both of us. It's not necessarily as educational and insightful as uh, (laughs) training advice is, but it still looks cool and it's free advertising for me and I appreciate that. And I also think the designs are cool. I literally only wear my merch now. (laughs) Um, But you can easily find it by checking out Equitheory on Teespring or just visit my website, jetequitheory.com slash shop to browse and find Teespring from there. We've got everything from sweatshirts, hoodies to t-shirts, mugs, banners, stickers, and everything in between. So be sure to check that out and support us if you can. But again, if not, no pressure whatsoever. It's all good. Just keep on listening to the podcast. Maybe do a little subscribe on the YouTube channel if you're feeling it. But that's about it. And with that, I'm going to let you get back into the things that you actually want to hear about. (laughs) Okay, friends, here it goes. Part two. Let's do this. Are you ready? I hope so. (laughs) Okay, so before we dive in, I I feel like I say that in every single episode, and you guys are like, uh, Jill, come on. But I just want to do a quick review. So the quadrants, right? Positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, okay? We're just going to do a refresher on some vocab. Reinforcement means to increase a behavior, and punishment means to decrease a behavior. Positive means addition, and negative means subtraction or removal. So positive reinforcement is adding something to increase behavior. Negative reinforcement is removing something to increase behavior. Positive punishment is adding something to decrease behavior, and negative punishment is removing something to decrease behavior. So I hope that makes sense in your brains, Um, and we're going to proceed off of that. And you guys know from the last episode, we kind of left off with me describing how to teach manners and how to teach targeting and that those are your kind of foundational behaviors. So I did an overview on that and got into it. And in this episode, I'm going to go a little bit deeper and explain a little bit more about that. But first, um, you know, I listened back to the episode before I recorded this one because I wanted to kind of take notes and make sure... Um, you know, if I had left anything out that I would be able to cover it in this episode. And there were a few things I left out. So um, the concept of negative reinforcement with a cherry on top. So that's what we call using negative reinforcement as your primary reinforcer and then feeding the horse a treat after. So you see what I'm talking about. So it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if your parents were to say, Jill, you need to clean out the dishwasher or you're going to be grounded for a week. 
So you go ahead and get your little honey in the kitchen and you clean out the dishwasher. And then they go, oh, here's a Hershey kiss for you. I'm a chocolate lover. I can't help it. I wish I wasn't, but such is life. Um, so the reason that I did the behavior was not to get the treat at the end. Most of the time, I don't know it's coming because when people use negative reinforcement with a cherry on top, it tends to be um, inconsistent and they're like, oh, didn't have treats today, um, you know, or just things happen. It's not deliberate. So the... A, the reinforcement delivery of the treat uh, is inconsistent, so you don't know if it's coming or not. And also you run into the issue of having, um, you know, you think that you're doing a good thing and that you're positively reinforcing a behavior. So, for instance, in the example of the parents telling me to do the dishwasher, my parents giving me a Hershey kiss, they're like, yes, she did it. Now she got she gets a treat, even if they had told me prior or every time I did the dishwasher, um, you know, it was you're going to get grounded. But I knew that, you know, there was a chance or I usually get a treat at the end. I'm not going to do it for a measly Hershey kiss. I'm doing it because I don't want to get grounded. And that happens a lot in horse training. So let's use an example here. So you are riding your horse and you ask them to come to a stop. You're trotting along and you pull on the reins and your horse slows to a stop, and then you release, and then you give them a treat. The reason the horse stopped is not because of the treat. The reason the horse stopped is because you pulled on the reins. It's uncomfortable. The horse wanted to alleviate that. You know, theoretically, this horse has been trained to stop when it gets pulled on, so it knows that if I stop moving when the person pulls on my reins, then they'll take the pressure off my mouth. They're not stopping because they want the treat, <laughs> in most cases, unless you train it with positive reinforcement, in which case the pulling on the reins wouldn't be a pull. It would be a tactile, like a lift on the reins, not a full actually pulling back and using pressure to um, you know, actually make it uncomfortable for the horse to create a backward motion, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm going to get into the different types of negative reinforcement towards the end of the episode. But I, I just kind of wanted to address that early on, because I have seen a lot of people online, particularly on Instagram. And while I am absolutely thrilled that, you know, a bunch of these younger people or even older people that are trying positive reinforcement for the first time are so excited and their post is wonderful and beautiful and, you know, I, I'm happy for them. And of course, I want more people in the positive reinforcement industry. But at the same time, I watch the video and I'm like, oh, no, like, that's such an easy fix. Um, like the other day, um, I don't know who it was. I think because I follow the positive reinforcement horse training hashtag or something on Instagram and uh, some account popped up on my feed and it was like, I'm so excited that I finally got into clicker training with insert horse name here. And um, I, you know, it's going really well, but she's, she was lunging the horse and she had a, um, a lunge line on him and was, I, I don't think that she had a lunge whip. I think she was using her arm to send him around. Um, but she was swinging her arm up behind him um, or the whip. I, I honestly can't remember. But so, and then she would click and treat after a couple steps. And uh, I, I watched it and I was like, this is not positive reinforcement. It's, I mean, it's good. It's better than, you know, just leaving it at the negative reinforcement. But at the same time, I'm like, the horse is not 
executing these behaviors because he wants the treat on the backside. He's executing the behaviors because, you know, your arm is flapping, you're scaring him forward, and most horses that are trained to lunge understand that if they do not go forward when you swing your arm up, that uh, the pressure is going to increase. You know, they might get hit with a whip. You might aggressively walk towards their hind end or hit them on the hind end. You know, there's a lot of like negative reinforcement training tends to work on an escalation principle so that you end up, um, you know, there's always a, a threat of increase. So when the horse doesn't go forward, when you walk, you apply more leg, you apply more leg, you apply more leg, and then you kick. And if he still doesn't go forward, you might dig your spur in or whip him. And then the horse eventually trots off forward and then you stop. So then, you know, the next time, hopefully <laughs> the horse will, realize that you putting your leg on the side, squeezing, is a signal that if he doesn't, then the pressure is going to increase and he might end up getting whipped again. So in order to avoid the whipping, the horse goes forward. That is how learning works. You know, we all people do things like that. We learn through negative reinforcement. Um, so for instance, I drove a um, courtesy car because my car has been breaking down all year. I don't know what the problem is. It's just 2020 bullshit. But um, I, I'm been, I was driving a courtesy car and Subaru's like whole thing is safety. And you know, my dinky 2013, which is probably not that dinky, um, but I'm mad at it because it keeps breaking. <laughs> um, but my my car just goes ding, ding, ding when I don't have my seatbelt on. And I never, ever drive without my seatbelt unless it's, like, up the driveway from my mailbox and I have to unbuckle my seatbelt to get my mail and then I got to drive up the driveway. I'm a big seatbelt person, but um, it's annoying, <laughs> but it's quiet enough that, it, I, like, I can tolerate it for the length of the driveway. But um, with the courtesy car, it would go ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I hate this car. And, but you know what it did? It made me put my seatbelt on. And um, because I was like, this is driving me insane. I need to avoid this sound, alleviate the annoyance by buckling my seatbelt. So in the future with that car, you know, I might, when I pull up to my mailbox, I would unbuckle my seatbelt, get my mail, and then buckle my seatbelt back before I drive up the driveway in order to avoid the sound happening again. So that is how learning works. And <laughs> you become more efficient, you get better at avoiding the negatives and seeking the positives in the colloquial sense. Um, so again, I touched on that in episode one, that's called hedonism. So you are seeking to um, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. So you know, even if it's emotional dinging pain. Um, but the same thing applies with horses. Horses have emotions and they have mental health and things of that nature. So you can also apply pressure and aversives as well as appetitives and desirables in a uh, mental health kind of uh, emotional sense, I guess. So yeah, that said, with the positive reinforcement with the cherry on top, again, like the girl that I'm talking about in the video, like I'm not hating on her or throwing any shade. She doesn't know and she's doing her best. Like she's just throwing a treat out there and she's like, look, clicker training. I think it's great, but I think it could be better. And, um, you know, you can also run into issues down the road doing that because, um, 
you know, you can end up poisoning a cue. And I know I've talked about that before. It, it's really tricky to explain. So I'm going to refrain from doing it in the beginner episode, but you can read Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz's work on that. I believe he worked with Mary Hunter um, and he has, I'm sure it's just look up Poison Q, Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, and you'll find it. Um, I know Alexander Curland sells a video um, that it's in, but I don't know that you can watch the video anywhere else. I believe I saw it in an online course. So it was really interesting, but the, um, what happened was there was a, a little dog that they were training and the dog is meant to go to a square on the mat and they're like, okay, I'm going to set it up better than that. <laughs> okay. So there's a trainer and the floor is a grid and there's this little white fluffy dog. <laughs> I don't know dog breeds. So it's just a little fluffy white dog. And the dog in the first scenario is on a leash. So he has a little harness on and he's got a little leash and he has a designated square that he goes to. And when he sets foot in that square, she cues him and says, um, I believe that was the, the punier cue. So she would say punier and the dog would orient to her and then come. That's the goal. But if the dog didn't immediately orient to her upon hearing the cue, then she would apply a little pressure to the lead and the dog would come over or be pulled over, you know, it wasn't like dragging the dog across the floor, but she'd pull on it. Um, and the dog would come and then she would click and treat. And then the dog would have to return to his square to get cute again. So this is uh, the concept of loopy training. So the dog has to go back to that position. And then when it's in that position, it gets cued. And if it doesn't orient quickly enough, it gets the negative reinforcement. And then it gets the positive reinforcement when it does finally reach the handler. So there's that instance, but what was happening in the video is, and like, I want to give a disclaimer here that, um, I believe it was only done with this one dog. So it's kind of a baby theory at the moment, but I have worked with so many horses at this point. Like I, I see it and it makes a lot of sense. I think it needs to be fleshed out a little bit, obviously, like it needs to be done in a bigger scale study. But I thought it was a really interesting concept and something to keep in mind when you're uh, mixing reinforcements, I mean. So the the little dog would, after he got his treat, he would kind of just wander around the grid and eventually work his way back to the square. And then she would cue him and then he would, you know, kind of come over to her. But he just didn't have any life to him. He didn't have his tail up. He wasn't wagging. He wasn't really looking at the handler. It was a slow walk. There was just no energy. Um, so then in the Ven queue, the dog would, um, it had a different square. It's the same setting, same trainer, same dog, everything. So the, the dog would ha go to a different square. And when it went to that square, she would say Ven, and then the dog would run up to her <laughs> and she would click and treat. So, um, you know, obviously both of those things had to be trained, but in the latter, the dog is not on a leash. It's, it's free, but it, it went back, to, it went to its square. She said, Ven, and it ran up to her and she, she gave it a treat. And then she said, or then, then it was done. And then the dog would go back to the square immediately. And this dog is like, he's jumping, he's got his tail wagging, he's bright eyed and bushy tailed. And he's like, let's do it, lady. Um, and it's the same dog. It's a different cue. So one cue has been poisoned because of negative reinforcement and the other has been, um, you know, left alone. So, you know, I said I wouldn't go into this description and here I am. <laughs> but the uh, 
the concept is such as to make it a human example. So it might be a little bit more relatable if you and this is uh, a, uh, an example that I stole from Alexandra Kurland because uh, I think it just it's it's a great example. But so imagine that you have an office job and you're sitting in your cubicle and your boss comes up to you and he says, hey, I need to see you after work. And you're like, okay. And he leaves and then you're sitting there and you're like, shit, what did I do? Like, did I do anything wrong? Is he going to give me a raise? Am I going to get fired? Like, what happened? And all of a sudden you're running through everything that you've ever done wrong in your life. <laughs> and, um, you know, then you you finish up your work and you've stressed out this whole time. Your armpits are soaking wet. <laughs> you know, you've lost all of your hair and you get into your boss's office and it's a very tentative, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then you get in there and he's like, congrats, you got a raise. And you're like, well, geez, like, because you, you didn't know. And that's the thing. It's you can't count on the fact that it's going to be good every time. And, you know, reality is reality. But for training purposes, and you know, for a healthy work environment, you would hope that you have a good enough relationship with your boss that you're not going to be afraid of that conversation. And because he, he just said it in a plain tone, he didn't say, I need to see you after work, but just like, hey, I need you to come to my office after work, the end. And so you you don't know it's that, um, that unsure anxiety. And that's what happens to the animals too, because they don't know if a good thing is coming or if a bad thing is coming. So, um, and you know, in the case of the dog too, your body language tends to be a little bit different, you know, like when you're doing positive reinforcement and your dog, it, and you know, even if you're doing negative reinforcement, it depends on your animal. But if your dog is like really, really excited through the roof, like bright eyed, bushy tailed, tail wagging all over the place, mouth open, and they just look like they're ready to play, like your energy is going to be completely different. You're going to be like, yes, good boy, come here. Like it's it's going to be like that versus, you know, if you're like, okay, dog, you're not, I, I gave you the command and you didn't immediately orient. Now I'm going to pull on your lead and, you know, then you're going to come or I'm going to make you. Then it's, it's, your energy is different. And that's what I was talking about in the last episode about the mindset shift and focusing on the good and making sure that you really reward it and make it a good thing. Because it can be rewarding beyond just the treats in that, you know, your horse will like to be around you a whole lot more if your energy is good. And uh, like, don't, don't run away just yet. <laughs> like energy is a weird thing. But you know, when you walk into a room and everyone is just kind of like silent and you can feel like an awkward tension and you don't know why, um, it's, it's mostly due to the fact that your brain can pick up on everybody's subtle behavior cues and things like that. But I also think there's some level of quantum physics or quantum mechanics or something. I'm not, uh, that's above my pay grade, but, uh, my therapist talked about it at one point. And I thought it was a really interesting concept about how like, you know, your emotional energy kind of emits and in, into the world and changes like, the energy in the air or something. I don't know. There was some like science explanation for it. Um, again, above my pay grade, I'm not, not on that level, 
but I'll take her word for it. <laughs> and if anybody out there knows about that, you're probably like, Jelly, don't understand it at all. You're right. <laughs> but um, it, it transfers to the horses too, because uh, you're consider the fact that you're working with a prey animal that has to be on high alert 90% of the time. So they're, they're always paying attention to your body language. And if you've had a really bad day and you come out to the barn and you're like, okay, horse, let's do this. Make me feel better. I'm counting on you. And, uh, you know, they, you can tell on those days that they're just wary of you. It always seemed to work like that for me when I would work with them on bad days that it just seemed like they were going out of their way to piss me off. And I think it was due to the fact that you know, I wasn't respecting them. And I was trying to use them to make me feel better instead of, you know, changing, changing it up and like, just taking responsibility for me. And on those bad days being like, yep, I'm in a bad mood. And if I don't think I can emotionally handle doing something like riding, you know, where I get my ego invested and all that, um, then I probably shouldn't do it today. Or, you know, we can give it a shot, but I'm not going to make it my horse's responsibility to make me feel better. And I'm also not going to use them as my punching bag. And um, so <laughs> I think the horses pick up on that, even if you don't actually like get aggressive with them while you're working with them. But just the fact that you're there and you're aggravated and you're taking it out on them in minimal ways, I think that they're like, ew, <laughs> why are you why are you reacting to me like that? What did I do? And then they get pissy. And I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit, but um, you know what, you get the point. Um, so anyway, I think that, you know, I just I would refrain from using positive re or negative reinforcement with the cherry on top just because it's not clear to the animal, you risk poisoning the cue. And I, I think it's more efficient and adheres to the Lima principle, which we're going to talk about next. Um, it's, it's makes more sense to just change the cue and do it differently and make sure that the reason that the animal is responding is because it's being motivated to respond by the reinforcer at the end. That is the positive reinforcement, positive reinforcer, which is the treat or the scratches or what have you, rather than the um, negative reinforcement or relief. So that's another problem with doing it is because you don't know why the animal is responding. You don't know if they're responding because they want the treat at the end or because, you know, you've done something that they want gotten rid of, you know. So that brings us to the Lima principle, which stands for least intrusive, minimally aversive. So this is an idea that is per, uh, propagated by the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, IAABC. And I want to give a quick shout out to Adele, Adele Shaw at the Willing Equine. She just got certified and I'm so proud of her because holy shit, it's really hard to get certified. But um, I that I just think it's awesome. She, I know how bad she wanted that. So I, it's cool. Um, but the Lima principle, least intrusive, minimally aversive. So I'm going to read an excerpt from their website and then go through the hierarchy. And if you want to follow along, you can go to my website, which is jeticwithyuri.com, and you can go to the positive reinforcement tab and go to plus R glossary. It should also be listed in the show notes, but you know, every platform that uh, I distribute to it, it like doesn't always show the link right. So hopefully it will and it will be there. But um, I'm going to go ahead and read it. So 
it's all the way at the bottom of my glossary page, but it is called the Lima Principle. So from the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, the humane hierarchy serves to guide professionals in their decision-making process during training and behavior modification. Additionally, it assists owners and animal care professionals in understanding the standard of care to be applied in determining animal training practices and methodologies and the order of implementation for applying those training practices and methodologies. So essentially, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a um, procedural hierarchy for working with animals. So what do you, what steps do you take first and what steps or interventions do you reserve for emergencies and worst case scenarios? So, um, if you are on my website, you'll see the little picture at the bottom by Friedman and is that Fritzster or Fritzler? I don't know. My outside is not great. Um, but it's called the Hierarchy of Behavior Change Procedures, Most Positive, Least Intrusive, Effective Intervention. So, um, you know, it's a little picture of a car, and it's it's driving along this road, and it has several exits um, that it can choose to take. So exit one is the wellness, nutritional, physical area. So that is your first stop. So whenever you're working with an animal, that's the first place you need to go, which is not usually the first place we go. You know, you buy a new horse and then you just put it on whatever food your barn offers instead of like taking an assessment of it. A lot of people do pre-purchase exams. A lot don't due to money, but you should still like just give your horse a thorough once over. Make sure they're not sore anywhere or moving weird. Um, I would recommend having a vet or some sort of body worker um, out to assess them because they get out just like we do, you know, chiropractically or fascia wise. So I think it's a, it's a really good thing to do. And it makes your training even more fair to the horse because I really don't believe in trying to train a horse that is in pain or uncomfortable or physically unable. And if you don't know, then you're risking that you're accidentally doing that because I think most people would agree. We don't need to train horses that are in pain and like make them you know, work. So, you know, go ahead and rule that out. So, um, it says health, nutritional and physical factors ensure that any indicators for possible, possible medical, nutritional, or other health factors are addressed by a licensed veterinarian. The consultant should also address potential factors in the physical environment. So, you know, that's nutrition and environment. So, you know, you want to ensure that your horse has basic access to all of his needs met. So that means that your horse needs to have access to social relationships. And I'm listing it first, because it is absolutely paramount. You create so many issues keeping horses in isolation. It's mm, no. Um, and then they need to have, you know, appropriate nutrition and have food constant forage and our horses are constantly producing stomach acids unless they are asleep then it slows down but it's still digesting so you need to ensure that they have you know access to having food all the time because it keeps their tummies healthy and happy and if you do not then you run the risk of creating ulcers because that acid in their stomach can start to um erode away at the lining and create very painful ulcers. Um, if you want to learn more about that, I have, um, actually, I don't think I have a tab up yet. Um, but you can listen to the podcast called straight from the horse doctor's mouth. And I think they have, it's called, 
I think it's called EGUS, um, equine gastric ulcer syndrome. Um, but they definitely have some ulcer podcasts, though there is a, a comment in one of them about girthiness that I disagreed with. <laughs> but um, I think for the like general explanation of what ulcers are, how you can mitigate them and things like that, I thought it was good. But I don't agree with just leaving a horse being girthy. Um, girthy meaning that when you do up the girth for the saddle, that the horse pins its ears and bites or swishes its tail or whatever. Um, I don't think that's okay. And I think you can easily solve that problem. But, um, the doc or the veterinarian in the episode was like, yeah, my horse is just girthy. You know, I don't know the horse, but, um, generally speaking, I would say that that is something that can be changed and should not just be left in the, you know, I wouldn't want my horse to just associate every time that I girth them up, that it's just going to suck. Um, even if the pain has been alleviated, there can still be a memory. Um, so change the association, but Anyway, so yeah, so that is the first exit. And then the second is antecedent arrangement. So antecedents are what comes before. So, you know, the antecedent to a pronoun is like what the pronoun refers to, you know? Um, so it is what it's, what comes before. So if you were to write a sentence and you say, Henry, the horse went out to his pasture, the pronoun is referring to the antecedent. So the pronoun is his, the antecedent is Henry. So it's referring to what came before. So antecedent would be the environment that your horse lives in and also the environment that you're going to work with them in. So, you know, we talked about setting up and making sure that they have all their physical needs met, which I just realized I did not finish listing. So social relationships, food, water, shelter, and access to areas where they can move around. Horses are not designed to stand still for half and or all of the day. So if possible, please do not stall your horse because that also creates an isolation problem. And they are just not designed for that. It is, it's not great in so many ways. And if you disagree with me, I encourage you to listen to the episode that I did with Shelby Dennis. I've no, I think that was like episode 35 of season two or it might, no, no, no. It, uh, well, it might be, I don't know. It, it's, it might be at the beginning of this season, actually. Um, but I thought that that was a really positive conversation about um, stalling. And we both talked about the science behind it, why you should, why you should not, under what circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but generally, don't do it. If you can prevent it, do not. Um, it, it just is not good for their mental health or for their bodies. But um, the the antecedent as far as training goes, you know, maybe let's not start teaching target training in the middle of an arena that they've never been in before away from their buddies and it's windy and there's no access to any other sort of food or anything like that. Uh, you're probably not going to have a very engaged learner. They're probably going to be running around the edges of the arena calling like mad horses. And, uh, you're going to be standing in the center going like, well, a clicker training doesn't work. Um, so you have to pay attention to your environment and you have to set the animal up for success. So that means that you might have to start in the horse's paddock or in the horse's stall instead of, um, you know, just going out to where you think you should work. So listen to your horse and see what they're comfortable with. Start there and then you can start increasing criteria and that way it'll go a lot faster and then you don't risk creating a bad association <laughs> with the arena that it's this big scary environment where they're terrified away from their buddies. Um, so you also want to, you know, take care to ensure that there's no, um, you know, they don't have a tooth issue that is hurting them so that 
they're not willing to take the treats or you're creating emotional uh, conflict by having them want the treat but can't eat it because their mouth hurts. So, um, you know, the IAABC says redesign settings, events, change motivations, and add or remove discriminative stimuli cues for behavior or for the problem behavior. So if the horse normally, um, oh God, uh, let me think of an example. Um, so if, if you're trying to teach a horse not to kick at the stall door when it's feed time, you're not going to start when it's feed time and there are the sounds of other horses eating bucket grain being poured in because all of those are discriminative stimuli and or cues that are um, triggering that problem behavior. So you're going to start somewhere else, install it into the repertoire and then slowly start, you know, creating almost like testing simulations. So like you, you might have another horse that got a flake of hay or something. Um, and then you're going to reward the horse for standing still. I don't know. That's probably not the best way to go about it, but that's, that's the only example I have in my brain right now. So I think you get the point. So that is, um, wellness and then antecedent arrangement. You're setting the stage and then we go on to exit three. So you have, you've set the stage, you've made sure that this horse is physically able to do whatever you should ask. And if not, then you avoid doing the things that he cannot. So if the horse has, you know, is foot sore, we don't do anything that requires walking. (laughs) Um, So then we move on to exit three, which is positive reinforcement. So IAABC says employ approaches that contingently deliver a consequence to increase the probability that the desired behavior will occur. So that just means positive reinforcement. So when the animal does a behavior that we want to happen more often, we're going to add a reinforcer or treats or scratches. Um, So that, um, but the reinforcement is contingent on the, um, on the behavior happening that we want to happen. So, you know, like with the horse that's pawing in a stall, you want to um, reinforce him for standing still. So that might mean you have to start when he's out in his paddock or somewhere where he doesn't paw. And then you want to put that behavior on a cue and then you can start transferring it to the stall over, you know, some several steps. So that is positive reinforcement. Then we go on to exit number four and it has a speed bump before it. So, um, you know, both are all exits one through three have arrows that you can pull into. And then <laughs> exit number four has a speed bump in front of it. And it is differential reinforcement of alternate alternative behaviors. Um, and that is reinforce an acceptable replacement behavior and remove the maintaining reinforcer for the problem behavior. So in the, um, you know, the example of the horse that's pawing in his stall, you you have to remove whatever is reinforcing that behavior. So in that example, it might be a little bit difficult because the, the reinforcement might just be that the horse is getting to let out his frustration. And, you know, the other horses are getting fed first. So he's pawing and frustrated and angry. So you would have to remove his frustration. So that might actually not be the best example. Um, I think that one... Um, that might be a better example is using, um, well, it's, it's tricky because I'm trying to think of one. It's tricky because, um, the example that I have in my brain uses negative punishment. Um, but I guess you kind of almost have to removing 
a reinforcer is nearly the same as <laughs> negative punishment, no? Um, I don't know. I've never thought about that before, and here I am. But I would say that, you know, you could look at it two ways, I guess. So I'll let you choose and do your own research because I actually I don't really have an example for this one because I'm not entirely sure that you're not able to use negative punishment in this one because negative punishment is in um, the next exit. So um, so for this one, what I did with Zoe was, you know, in the last episode, I talked about her um, hip targeting and she would just do it all the time. And I decided that the way to do that and put it on, or the way to put it on stimulus control would be to use this method by just reinforcing a different behavior. So when I was in the spot where she thought was going to predict that I'd cue for hip targeting, I would instead cue for back and then I would reinforce for that. So um, I think that this one you have to be careful because it can be frustrating. So if I went there and I cued for back and she didn't really have that cue solid or she didn't know that I could do it from anywhere around her body, like if she thought I had to stand in front of her and cue it, because for instance, or for uh, context, her back cue is me kind of like shaking my finger and pointing backward. Um, so, and I say back. And so if she didn't have the knowledge that I could do that from anywhere around her and part of the cue was that I'm standing in front of her, then she's not set up for success and she risks or being really frustrated. So in the example that I am giving with the differential reinforcement of an alternative behavior, I stood in the spot that she thought predicted cueing for hip targeting. So she would go ahead and start um, targeting for her hip, but I would cue her for back and then she'd switch and she'd start backing up and then I'd click and treat for that. So it was more of a, a redirection rather than a just let her keep hip targeting while I stand there and don't cue her for anything and then click her for being still. Um, because I mean, you kind of have to have a behavior or something. Um, but the point is that you're putting the animal in stimulus control, um, so that they don't just do the behaviors whenever for safety reasons. Um, but, and the humane hierarchy is all about safety. Like it, it's to guide you as a trainer and help you make good decisions so that nobody gets injured. Um, so that moves us on to, um, exit number five, which is not labeled as an exit. Um, it just has a yield sign and also a bigger speed bump in front of it. And this category number five is negative punishment, negative reinforcement, extinction. Um, they're not listed in any order or preference. Um, so, you know, we talked about negative punishment and negative reinforcement, but extinction is permanently remove the maintaining reinforcer to suppress the behavior or reduce it to baseline levels. So the easiest way I think to explain this one is um, kind of like a Skinner box <laughs> explanation. So if you had a little box that had a lever and a food trough in it, and you had a little mouse in there, and the mouse had been trained that if he pressed the lever, food would dispense out of the, um, the trough. Sorry, I had to burp <laughs> as per usual. Um, so an extinction process would be that you would turn off the food delivery function. So the little mouse is in there and he's like, I would like a snack now. Press the button and there's no food. So what does he do? You know what we all do. You start pressing it harder and you press and press and press and press and press and it doesn't work. And so then you might like be like, okay, well, I don't know what's going on right now. That's odd. And then you might wander away, go think about it and then come back and then, you know, press it a couple more times. It doesn't happen. 
And then you're like, okay, well, whatever. And then a little while later, you're like, man, I really want that to work. And you come back and you try it again, and it's still not working. And then your frustration kind of mounts, and then you start pressing it really hard, and you get really aggressive, and that's what we call an extinction burst. And then finally, you give up, and then it, um, the animal will pretty much never press the lever again. And so... I don't know why my chair is so squeaky. I hope you can't hear that. Um, but I would like to change positions. Um, I keep saying, oh, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to pop my neck. Oh, I got it. Um, God, there it is. Ew, I hate that. So in horses, in Zoe's hip targeting example, I would just continue to stand there without cueing, and I wouldn't reinforce her. And she would just keep hip targeting and hip targeting and hip targeting and hip targeting. And, you know, I would probably have to keep moving away from her. But she would just keep doing it until, you know, she realized that it wasn't going to happen anymore. Or if I were to cue her for hip targeting and then never reinforce her. Yeah, that could work too. It also works in negative reinforcement. So take your dead broke school ponies that you can kick and whip as hard as you would like and they will never go faster. So what has happened in that example is that when you kick and 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 kick every single stride, you know, sometimes younger kids have a hard time maintaining balance and so they uh, unintentionally or maybe intentionally kick every single stride. Eventually, the pony learns there is no way to evade this and I just have to deal with it. So if nothing ever changes, if there's never any relief or reinforcement, then the behavior stops. So the goal of putting your leg on is to get the horse to go forward, but the reason that the horse learns is through reinforcement, which is through relief. So your leg stops. If your leg never stops and the horse learns that there's nothing it can do, it goes into learned helplessness and also decides that, you know, it doesn't mean anything anymore. You can kick all day long and he's just going to keep going the same pace. Um, which is really unfortunate. But Alexander Curlin actually just did an episode. She's coming up a lot in this episode of mine. Um, she did an episode on her podcast called, um, oh my God, what is it called? Um, Equiosity. And it's, uh, it's like a different perspective on extinction or something like that. I forget exactly the title. I'll link it in this episode's notes. But um, it is a really, really good conversation on an extinction. It, they talked more in depth about that negative reinforcement example, and I had never considered that, you know, you could extinguish a negative reinforcement cue. But I thought it was really interesting, and I recommend listening to it if you're um, into it. But yeah, so those are the category five ones. And our last category is number six, and it has a stop sign and the biggest speed bump of them all, and it's positive punishment, uh, which is defined as contingently delivering an aversive consequence to reduce the probability that the problem behavior will occur. So the most common example everyone knows is a horse stops at a jump, and you, you know, you get really aggressive. There's probably a lot of punishment that happens in there. You hit it with the whip. You might rip its face off. I can't tell you how many times my trainers, um, you know, if I had a horse that kept stopping at a jump um, or running out to the side, they would be like, rip his face off, get him back in front of it and stand him there. And uh, all of that is punishing, ripping the horse's face, being really aggressive and harsh with the, uh, you know, your tools, the bit, the whip, your spurs, your leg, um, you know, 
it's all causing pain at a very high level intentionally to make the horse understand that running out of that jump was not the answer. It is not okay. You're not allowed to do that. And I get it. But at the same time, there are other ways to handle that. And I am strongly against the use of positive punishment. And as a human who has dealt with other humans, I can tell you sometimes when you get punished, you have no idea what it was for. Even if it followed, you know, what happened, you know, if you get hit, sometimes it doesn't even do the job of telling you what you've done wrong. Because, you know, in... um in episodes past, I always said the only thing that positive punishment accomplishes is telling the animal that was wrong. It doesn't give them any alternative behaviors. It doesn't say, hey, try this instead. It doesn't say like, nope, not right. Let's let's try this. It just says wrong. That's it. So, you know, if you were to get, um, you know, a test back, like you, you took a, a multiple choice test and your, your teacher just wrote wrong at the top of it and slid you your paperback. You would be like, well, what did I do wrong? Which part? Like, what was it that's wrong? And so sometimes you do know that it was wrong because they'll, they'll go down the line and individually mark which questions you got wrong. Or, you know, your parents have the ability to tell you, hey, you know, you're grounded because X, Y, Z. And your animals can also understand, like, oh, I don't know if, uh, I just don't like examples of positive punishment because it always involves hitting animals. Um, so I guess it could be like, I don't know, say your dog really didn't like having his hair ruffled on his head and he walks up to you and sniffs your plate of food and you ruffle the hair on his head and he leaves because he's like fuck that I don't like that and so um you've positively punished him you've decreased his behavior because it was in direct relation to your food so now you know and the thing about punishment is you have to do it every single time that that happens it's kind of like cats are really hard to keep off counters because, you know, sometimes they can get on the counters and sometimes they can't. The only difference is whether you're present or not. And if you punish a cat every single time it's on a counter, you know, pretty soon they're just going to learn, okay, I'm not allowed to be on the counter when the human's home. But when they're not home, I can be on the counter if I want to be. And there are other ways to train that rather than just, you know, harming your animal, but fine. So anyway, that wraps up the Lima principle, which has now taken up 90% of what I thought the episode was going to take up. Um, but you can read more about that on IAABC's website. I also have it linked in my, um, oh God, what is it called? My website on the glossary page. But um, I think it's, it's really important to do that going into training and use it as an outline for how you're going to work with your animals. Um, personally, I do not like to go past the um, differential reinforcement of incompatible behaviors. Um, I don't like to use negative reinforcement and anything beyond just because it's not um, – you know, I don't think that it really is called for most of the time, especially for fun things. Like we're doing this for fun. Remember, we're doing it because we love the horses, because, you know, riding and jumping and being around them is fun. And I think doing doing things to the animal that aren't fun, because it's not fun for me to whip a horse. It's not fun for me to dig spurs into the horse. And if there is another way to achieve the behaviors that I'm trying to achieve with those tools, then why would I not choose to do it that way? Because it's 
hard and I have to learn something. <laughs> like, and that's the decision I made a while back. And, you know, it's not for everyone. Some people would rather just, you know, keep doing it the way that everybody else does it, the traditional way. And that is your own imperative or prerogative imperative. Well, that's a question. Um, anyway, so I also want to say with the setting up the environment, it's really important that your horse has access to an alternate food source. Um, you know, a really clicker savvy horse that's always really tuned into you and very motivated by what you're doing and, but isn't worried about the food. It, um, you know, it's, it, it's okay if you don't have it always available, but particularly with anxious horses and horses that have, um, you know, food anxiety, things of that nature, it can be really, really helpful to have just a flake of hay on the ground next to where you're training. The fancy science word for this is called contra-freeloading, and it essentially means that you would... I'm sorry, my chair is so squeaky. <laughs> it's... I hate that. <laughs> um, but contra-freeloading essentially means that you would prefer to work for the food than just have it easily accessible. You can look up tons of videos of animals contra-freeloading and, you know, they'd rather do all of these elaborate things to try and get the food out of an object that is making it more difficult rather than just, um, you know, eat it free freeloading off of the ground. Um, so yeah. And I think that's, that's why positive reinforcement works so well because it's more enriching and they're having to, you know, do something, use their brain, create new neural pathways, which always feels nice. Um, and yeah. So anyway, I think the last thing that I want to say before we dive into all of the basic behavior things is please just ask why, you know, that, that is really the biggest thing. And I know I harped on it on the last episode, but I, it bears repeating. So, you know, just anytime anybody says, oh, well, horses do this because, say why. And if they give you an answer, say why, you know, and go and look it up for yourself and validate the information and be sure it's coming from a credible source, that preferably a PhD who has done a study on it and not just, you know, a regular trainer Facebook blog or something. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I think now we can go ahead and move on into the basic behaviors. So in order to start training something, you kind of have to have a goal, right? You can't just like go out in the field with your horse and then things like what would happen <laughs> if you don't have a goal? Um, and I think what happens a lot of the time is that we go out into the field with our horses, especially when we are like in the mindset of like, oh, I'm going to trick train today. And you have a vague idea and a not well-defined idea of what you want to do. And then you end up with a, um, you know, kind of a scatterbrained all over the place training session. And unfortunately, but admittedly, that is what often happens to me because I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because I'm not used to it because my way of working with horses throughout my entire life, like the past decade I've been working with horses has been, you know, you just go out to the farm and work on things that you've been working on. And I don't know, when your trainer says something new, then you're like, okay, well, I guess I need to focus on that. But th there's never really been like a breakdown, like, 
okay, I want to work on leg yields today. What is the smallest component of that behavior? Well, I have to be able to catch my horse and I have to be able to tack up and then lead and then get her into the arena. And then I have to ride. And that means I have to walk and trot and canter and turn. And can I have contact? Can I, um, you know, does she move off my leg? Does leg only mean forward? Like there are so many things that go into it. And I think we forget about that a lot just because, you know, you get used to your horse and what they know. And I think most times people don't really understand and or appreciate how much their horses know until they, you know, get on a greenie and they're like, oh my God, I need to go back to my my home horse, the one that just is so comfortable and cozy and I know them so well, like, and they know things. Um, so, oh my goodness. Uh, my cat, Wally, is like eating all of my fake flowers. <sighs> He's like dragging it into the sink. Cool. I love that. Um, anyway, so... It's really important for positive reinforcement training, especially when you're at the beginning and you're trying to learn while you teach your horse. And it gets complicated, but I think the easiest way to sort of mitigate, you know, I was going to, I was going to mute my computer and I chose not to, I'm sorry. Um, but I think the easiest way to mitigate some of the fallout that can come from, you know, a green on green situation is to really get diligent about planning. So um, it's so weird how things have been working out lately. It's just things keep happening in the most incredibly coincidental order, Um, you know, because I waited until the last minute to film this episode. But I also happened to like watch a, a few videos from Sandra Pompama's course, Hippologic. And um, that's not the name of her course, that's the name of her business. But uh, the course is about like defining your goals and training and stuff. And I had a conversation with her recently. And I, I told her that I was really struggling with staying motivated. Um, for me, I think what happened, quick tangent here, but what else is new? Um, I I, the past couple of months have been like absolutely ridiculous. I've never been this busy in my entire life. And I thought with lockdown and a global pandemic that I would have nothing to do and be bored out of my mind. But I am not sleeping because I have so much to do. And it's been going on like that for a couple of months now. And it's, um, it, I could tell it was taking its toll because I was really stressed out all the time. I I mean, I'm in a master's program and then I'm trying to do my podcast and, you know, build my business or brand bigger. I don't know what word to use, whatever. Um, <laughs> but and I, I'm just like really passionate about learning about all of the things about horses and training. But for some reason, I just can't drag myself out of my house to go work with any of them. And I got to the point where I was like really harping on myself for it. And I was like, you suck. Like <laughs> you, you're doing all this learning to train and you aren't training. Like why you're not even wanting to be around the horses. It's a weird paradox because I do want to be around them, but I can't force myself to go do it. And, um, you know, I have lots of theories on that, but I really think the biggest thing that happened is I just got really burnt out on everything. And it's a lot easier to sit at my computer and work on the things that don't require me to you know, expend energy, I guess. And, um, you know, it's similar to how my body responds to depression, oddly enough. I'm not depressed right now because um, I, I know what that feels like. But this just, it feels like my body's just recouping. Like I, I just pushed it really far 
because like like I said, I was just really, really, really busy. And, uh, you know, I was trying to balance the horses with it and it just wasn't really going well. And, you know, of course, with training, there's also like a fear of failure. And like, if I dedicate time, I, I'm not entirely sure if it's, um, you know, going to be fruitful. Whereas with, um, you know, doing things online, I can control it, make it happen. And so that's kind of, (laughs) you know, a little insight there. Um, but I, I know because of, you know, past patterns that this is just kind of how, um, it works for me for some reason. I've always gone through waves of being really interested in riding and being with the horses and then phases where I just do not want to be at the barn at all, but I want to be there. Like I want to want to be there, if that makes sense. And so, um, it happens and I just kind of have to wait it out and wait for my body to kind of take a reset. I think, like I said, I just pushed it really hard and wore myself down until I had nothing to give anymore. And now my body is like, okay, we need a break. And so I know it'll come back. I have faith and confidence in that. And, you know, I'm kind of at first I was berating myself for it. And now I'm like, you know what, we'll just use this opportunity of me not wanting to really interact or engage to, you know, just learn, just take time to soak up the information so that when I am ready to go back out there, then I will be fully armed with an arsenal full of plans. Um, but in doing so, um, you know, I told that to Sandra and she was like, okay, I hear you. And then a few days later, she um, sent me a message and was like, hey, I'm doing a course on um, values and, you know, staying motivated and things like that. And I think it could help you based on our conversation. And I was like, okay, because I'm normally not one to like, want to sit down and take a course about, you know, how to get motivated again. It's just not my thing. I'm like, whatever, it'll happen. And (laughs) so, um, you know, I was like, well, I really like her and I, I know she has some awesome stuff to bring to the table, so I'll check it out. And so I did, and I'm halfway through the course that she, um, recommended to me and I, I'm not sure how you access it. I think you have to be a member of HippoLogic. She added me to a Facebook group, so I'm really not sure how, (laughs) how I got there. I just kind of clicked on things until I ended up there, but, um, her website, I believe is clickertraining.ca. Um, but you can find her by looking up Sandra Pompama at HippoLogic or Papama. I don't know. I'm a little dyslexic and names are difficult for my brain, but, um, love her. (laughs) And I'm embarrassed that I (laughs) might be messing up her name. Um, but you know, you do that thing where you read something wrong first and then it just sticks and you can't retrain it. Um, sorry, (laughs) cats distracting me. Um, anyway, so my point in that lovely tangent is that, um, I started taking the course and, you know, without giving it all away, she asked a lot of questions about evaluating your your values in writing. Like what what do you value in writing? Is it winning? Is it, you know, being able to complete really skilled complex movements or is it more the relationship and the connection and freedom and autonomy or is it a combination or and like just all of those things and so I took some time to reflect on some good experiences some bad ones and some of my ideals and what I just really want out of my relationship with my horses and I wrote them all down and I actually found that really um 
clarifying because you kind you know all of that in the back of your mind, but when you don't have words to put to it, it it doesn't drive you and inspire you as much. So anyway, recommend that course, hella. <laughs> but um, I think that that is step one <clears throat> into working with um, you know positive reinforcement and starting to train your horse. Thinking about okay, what is my first step into working with them and teaching behaviors? The first step is to do an, a value evaluation, like go over what matters to you because that'll help you stick to what you believe in. Even when things get frustrating, when they get tough, when you feel like you suck and you don't know what to do and you're way in over your head, um, you know, those values will help drive you to, you know, seek out the resources or the inner strength <laughs> to do what you would like to. And then secondly, I think it's really important um to outline some goals. So I recently fell down a rabbit hole. Um, I believe the Instagram account is Gabelle Studies, G-A-B-E-L-L-E Studies. And she is a vet student. <clears throat> Sorry, I don't know why I've got, like, I feel like I've got stuff in my throat. Um, but she's a vet student and she does bullet journaling and writes these beautiful, beautiful notes. And I do a variation of it. I just didn't really realize. I've never been one for color coding and all of that until I realized that I just was never appreciating my notes because I take them, but I never refer back to them. I have a hard time finding stuff. So I started color coding and, um, you know, writing things in different fonts and boxing things and whatever. And I found that that really helped me like engage with my notes better and care about it more. I'm also an artist. So, you know, <clears throat> it's right up my alley. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do that. So I, I'm going to order some bu bullet journals. Um, I looked into the ones that the Willing Equine uses. It's off of May Designs, M-A-Y-Designs.com. And um, I really liked those, and that was the route I was going to go first, but they're kind of pricey because you can customize them and make them really cute and, like, put the horse's name on it and everything. Um, and it comes with, like, a pre-set-up, non-dated calendar. And I, like, if you're interested, I looked at ordering the largest size because it has the, like, a teacher setup, so you can, like do it by subject or whatever, but you can change it for behaviors and whatnot. I thought it was really cool, but they, they do get pricey and I want several for <laughs> all of the horses that I work with. And I didn't really want to pay for, you know, a bunch of different ones. <clears throat> oh my God. I like my, I keep getting crap in my throat. Uh, I haven't said that word in a long time. Look at me being PC. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I think I'm just going to order some, uh, dotted, grid journals and um you know some pans i like my uh what are these called my pilot g207s those are the best pens in the entire world if you have ever wondered they're the best and uh you know just get some colors so i can be super artsy and that way it'll hopefully drive me to want to do notes because i always get really frustrated when they're not organized or pretty and then i end, end up scrapping them and then i don't start again because i'm like i'm overwhelmed it's not going to look good and I, i'm going to hate it anyway and that is the self-defeating language that we don't like in this household so I am pushing through and deciding that it's okay if it is not perfect as long as I can keep up with what the horses know, our progress, and also just being able to reflect back because 
I think it's really easy to get caught up in that, you know, like, oh, it's not going well. It's always been bad. We're not making any process progress. When you can go back to last week and look and you're like, oh, my God, we've made a lot of progress. And, you know, I want to do it like one for personal things, too, because I think it really helps you keep perspective. Um, a lot of people do like every day they'll rate their mood, like how the day went and write the best experience of the day, something they want to work on, whatever. And that way, you know, when you get into a slump, you can look back and be like, okay, well, it hasn't been bad forever. Because for some reason, human brains like to tell you when you are already down, that it's always been bad and life has always sucked. <laughs> and it's just not true. So I think that having a visual reminder like that is uh, going to be really powerful. And in that, within the training journals, I'm going to do goals and things like that. I haven't quite decided how I want to set it up yet, but, um, you know, once I have some monies, I'm going to order a few different journals and, um, you know, put all the horsey's names on them and get into it, you know? Yeah, get into it. <laughs> and that way, because uh, I think with goals, it, it's really easy to be like, okay, I want to teach my horse manners. I want to teach my horse to stand in the cross ties. Okay, that's not enough. Good start. Um, but that is the end behavior. And if you remember from last week's episode, I talked about how in traditional riding and training, we tend to just really focus on the end behavior. Like if you were teaching leg yield, you kind of just like you know, hold your outside rein, open your inside rein, put your inside leg on and kind of push and hold until the horse steps in the right direction. And then a good negative reinforcement trainer would release when the horse steps in the right direction and then cue again. But, um, you know, it's, you're, you're, you have to get the end behavior so that you can release. We don't really work in successive approximations. Um, so I would say, that it's it's more difficult, I think, to switch from that um, because you have to break it all the way down. Like I said, um, you know, if I were thinking about doing it now, I'm like, okay, well, in order to get there, look at let's list all of the things that the horse has to be able to do first. You don't have to break it down quite that much, but make sure that you have some foundation there. <laughs> you know, if your horse knows nothing, then you have to teach the foundations first. So, you know, um, you know, I've said that twice now. I'm trying to decide what order I want to go in or if I want to move down the list. So I think what we're going to do is goals and value evaluation is step one. Step two asks, is there a general order of behavior behaviors? What do I do first? What are the baselines? So this is where you teach manners and you teach how your horse can respond around food by being calm and uh, patient and understanding that it's going to come and have confidence in you as a trainer. You want to also teach them how to be stationary, handling healthcare behaviors, targeting comes in handy way more than you ever think it would, trailering, <laughs> I'm looking at you, and prepping for existence in the human world. So, oh my God, my cats are insane. So, you know, just all of the things that a horse needs to be successful. So this isn't even broaching riding yet. I always say broaching, and I'm pretty sure it's breaching. I need to look up the difference between it. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, so everything that the horse needs to be able to do, they need to pick up their feet, they need to halter, they need to lower their heads, they need to understand how to react around food and how to be calm and stay out of your bubble, how to target, how to lead, how to walk past grass, how to everything. So all the basic 
handling healthcare, blah, blah, blah. So for each of those behaviors, we're going to go back to step one. There's a goal. Each of those behaviors is the goal. So how do you get there? Break it down into its smallest, smallest component. You can work backwards or forwards, whichever way makes the most sense to you. But this is called successive approximation training. So you work up very, very, very slowly until you get the end behavior. This, um, a lot of people do this with um, desensitization in people that have phobias. So if, you know, I was really, really afraid of spiders per se. I would, uh, you know, probably be working with a therapist and have them walk me through a procedure for systematic desensitization, which is what we call it. And they use successive approximation. So you slowly start getting more and more used to the stimulus and letting your brain understand that it's safe and you're okay and you don't have to react to that level. So, you know, you first have like, you know, maybe draw a picture of a spider or maybe just think about the spider, then draw the picture and then, you know, put the picture close to you. Then maybe we look up an actual picture of a spider and then maybe we learn more about the spider to feel safer about it because we are afraid of that which we do not know. And then maybe you take a a toy spider and have it in the room and then you have it closer to you and then you have it on you. Like that's all working up to being able to maybe hold a spider and not be afraid. So the same thing works with horses, particularly because a lot of their issues with certain behaviors are fear-based because they're prey animals. They're designed to, you know, survive at all costs and their primary survival mechanism or defense is to flee. So if a horse is afraid of something, they're like, I don't want to be anywhere near it. So with targeting, if your horse is afraid of the object, you're going to have to start way back at square one of just having the horse like even acknowledge its presence and start to associate positive things with it. So how I would teach targeting Uh, for the sake of example, not with a horse that is afraid of it. Um, You know, I would have an object and I would hold it out away from them. I would also be mindful of my body because it's, it's really kind of confronting to be fully front on facing your horse, staring at them. And it's a, it's kind of a really, it's a really aggressive body language to have. And a lot of horses, if you, if you've ever noticed especially horses that are maybe younger or more on the anxious side. If you go out to catch them in the field and you walk up to them straight on and they turn their head away from you, that's a calming signal. They're signaling to you like, I don't mean any harm. Like, okay, don't eat me. Um, So if you be aware of that next time and what I've started doing is when I am walking up to a horse and I notice that they give me a calming signal like that, I immediately look at the ground and turn my shoulders like, you know, to where we're on a diagonal now. I'm not straight facing them and or I'll stop completely and back up a step. And uh, you can also walk to them on a curve because horses naturally curve. All of this is from the Language Signs and Calming Signals of Horses book by uh, Raquel Dreisma. But if you if you do those, you're being much more respectful and polite to your horse and you're taking steps to make them even more comfortable around you by making them 
recognize or helping them to recognize that you recognize that they're slightly uncomfortable and that you're respecting that and that you're not a threat. And that has helped me a lot, especially with some of our rescue horses and just like understanding how they communicate with each other and what, what signs they'll give me when I'm making them uncomfortable and how I can respond appropriately to make them more comfortable. So with the targeting, I try not to stand facing them straight on. And I know in Alexandra Curlin's book, I'm pretty sure she teaches manners by standing straight in front of them. And I think, because I told her at her clinic that I stand beside them. And she said that's it's not clear enough. And I understand that. But at the same time, I I don't think it's it would work for every horse because it's a rather confronting position to be in to be facing them straight on. So I prefer to be able to have them, you know, on my side. I like to stand at the side of their head in protective contact when I'm teaching it first. So anyway, I I just you know so my point in saying that is that different trainers do different things and that's okay. It's this is just the way that I prefer to do it because of my experiences and what I know, <laughs> but I'm also haven't been clicker training for 30 years like Curland has. But, um, anyway, so teaching targeting, standing beside them. So first of all, can you stand beside them and them have their head out of the stall or the paddock fence or what have you? If not, then you might have to stand near the fence and poke the target in there and face away from them. So when I started Juno, that's actually how I started her. Um, because I couldn't, I could not stand facing her. She wouldn't handle it. So I stood with my back up against the fence and would, um, would hold out the target stick. And when I saw her look at it, I would click and then put some treats in a bowl and uh, like her feed tub on the ground. And then I would retreat so she could get them. And then we, we would do it again and again and again, whatever. Um, so you have to break it all the way down, however far the horse needs you to go. So for instance, let's actually get to the step-by-step since I keep trying and failing. Say your horse is in a stall. He's got his head hanging out. You're standing at his side and you hold out the target stick. His ears flick onto it and he looks at it. Click treat. Okay. So that's step one. You want the horse to acknowledge it exists, to pay attention to it. This thing is important. And then, you know, maybe the next step, like get the looking at it a few times. And then your next step might be to, um, you know, reach out to it, try and sniff it, any movement toward it, any movement at all toward it, click any, and then next you would do any like further movement and just slowly up your criteria until your horse is touching it. And then they're able to touch it anywhere. And I'm explaining it in a quick way, but, you know, sometimes for horses, it can take a long time. So I teach that first targeting, and then I move into manners, which I explained in the last episode. But I do want to say about that um, feeding for position. I know I talked a lot about that when you first start feeding, you need to make sure that you are bringing the food to them and that they never have to chase your hand or come into you for the food. Because the whole point is to teach the horse to stay out of your space when you have food, because you don't want them doing that to other people or to you because it's a safety thing. And you also want the horse to feel comfortable and confident that you're going to deliver it to them and they have no need to be anxious or searching for it. We don't need foraging right now. So, um, 
but I also want to tack on feeding for position. So, you know, um, one of my patrons mentioned that in a horse that has a choke risk, she always feeds her horse very low on the ground. So maybe that's something you consider. Um, another thing to consider with choking is to, uh, not feed so many and maybe feed smaller pellets, uh, alfalfa and hay pellets come in all different sizes. Um, so it depends on your area, but also, you know, you can look photo in different sizes and not feed so many at once. I'm a handful person, so I, I like to give handfuls, but that is not always a good thing, but I haven't yet met a horse that chokes on them. Um, I think it tends to be the alfalfa cubes that always get them and have a reputation for choking, but, um, you know, I bet other people have experienced otherwise. Um, anyway, so feeding for position, if you like my horses know, uh, the word calm, which is a head lowering cue. So I say calm and they drop their noses to the ground. So if I click that, I expect them to stay out of my space and keep their head square between their shoulders, but I'm rewarding them for having their heads low so that they don't need to come back up. Because when you start working on duration and things like that, you want the horse to keep their head there. You want them to be thinking to stretch over their back and down and low. Also, having um, teaching calm is a very good thing. Um, I actually I named the cue calm because um, having a head low for a horse means that everything is fine. We're safe. Because if you think about it, when horses are grazing and they're out in the field hanging out, then their heads are generally down and they're grazing and hanging out and relaxing. Even if they're asleep, their heads are typically pretty low. And when they're anxious or something's happening, something's exciting, or, oh my God, what's that in the distance? Their heads go up really high and they get really tense and alert. So I always want them to be thinking calm, which is head down, lowered, relaxed. And so... That's why I picked that word, and that is one of my base behaviors. So I would do that, and it doesn't make sense to then feed her in her normal position up at chest level because I'm rewarding her for having her head low, so I want to feed her with a low head. Obviously, this isn't going to apply to every behavior, you know, like trotting. You can't feed them while they're trotting, or you could, but it would be funny to watch you do that. But, um, you know, I want to feed for the body awareness that I want her to have. So even when she does have her head at chest level, I don't want to be feeding her at her chest so she has to tuck her chin back and roll cur. And I don't want to, um, you know, feed her way out where she has to kind of like invert to reach. I want to feed her in a slightly lower dropped position where she kind of lifts her back a little bit and rounds over her top line in her neck. And those things are really important and going a long way for strength. And you don't even really notice it's happening, but it's something really to be aware of, especially when you're teaching behaviors like head lowering, because you don't want to feed high because then you're going to create this horse that's a seesaw. Um, but anyway, so that is first teaching targeting and manners, which subsequently includes teaching your horse how to be calm around food as well as body awareness and then move into head lowering and then being stationary. So I like to do this with mat work. So I bought a cheap mat off of Amazon that I talked about in the last episode and I trained Zoe by successively getting her to walk onto the mat. I targeted her 
had her follow the target and step onto the mat. And when she put a foot on the mat, I would click. And then we, um, you know, would work up to two feet. And then eventually we got to the point where I could fade out the target and point to the mat. And then she would walk up to it and put both of her front feet on it. So really cool. Love that. (laughs) And it goes a long way for, you know, ground tying sort of thing. So how you would move into that would be that, okay, now the horse understands when you put the mat down, they need to put their feet on it. Like me and Zoe got to where I could take the mat out and I could throw it and then she would go park on it. And then the next step is being able to be like, okay, can I walk to your shoulder? Click. Can I walk to your stomach? Click. Can I walk to your hip? Click. Can I walk around the back of you? Click. Can I walk all the way around you? Click. Can I walk forwards away from you? Click. You know, just making sure that they understand the cue. And I would add a word cue to that, like stay. (laughs) And then seeing how far you can get away and then click before they move. Please do not click when they move because then you've, (laughs) you've screwed up. But you want to be clear to them that the intent is to stay. And when you want them to not stay any longer, you can break out the target stick or if they know walk on or another cue, you can cue them to leave and then they they can walk away. And then you could cue them for the mat again. And that would be a good way to alternate between behaviors and really help put it on stimulus control, which means they only do it when you give the stimulus or give the cue. Oh my God, which is a stimulus, whatever. Anyway. So those are the first, what is that? Four, I think targeting manners, head lowering and being stationary. Another one that is really useful to teach is backup. But I want to say, please do not teach your horse to back up by pressing on their chest because a, most horses already know how to do that. And while you could do a cue transfer, um, they tend to be slightly overzealous about it. So for Zoe, I taught her to back up by putting my hand on her chest and then leaning with my upper body backwards. I didn't push on my hand, but I, I just leaned with my body with my hand on her chest and my body language told her to go backwards. So she did. And now every time I touch her chest, she backs up. And, you know, sometimes during training, you just want to scratch them. And then she's backing up away from me. So don't do that. Also, because you might accidentally use negative reinforcement. And the goal is to create the behavior out of purely positive reinforcement. So if you, you know, push with your hand and then when they back up, you click and treat. You know, even if you've been in a clicker session for a while now and they know that that's what's happening, um, you know, the food could be motivating it. But at the same time, the reason that they backed and that cue is from a negative reinforcement cue, which is fine. Like if your horse doesn't have a problem with that, it's cool. But I think it's it's cooler to be able to say back and your horse just back up or to be able to point and shake your finger or lean or look or something. And like for Zoe, I have a point cue and I also have the word back and she'll back up. And then you have to slowly start working up to, you know, being able to take more steps. But the first, the first, um, I guess like 
I don't want to say step because that's confusing, but the first little piece of being able to back up is to flick an ear backwards, perhaps, or to look behind them or to lean backwards. You can see the muscles in their chest twitch when they get ready to take a step. Click that. Don't wait for them to take a step because sometimes what happens is when you're waiting for too much, they might just rock back and then come back forward. They're like, oh, that wasn't right. So, you know, click for their thoughts. (laughs) You know, she's thinking about going back. Click. Um, and then you can gradually work up to more. And uh, yeah, so I would say teach those. And then you can move into the handling and healthcare behaviors, which are really important because you want your horse to be able to exist in this human world that we've brought them into. So they need to be able to understand things like shots and medications. And uh, for Zoe, she injured her eye shortly after I started positive reinforcement training. And thankfully, I had listened to an episode of uh, In the Spirit of Horse by Little Pislani, a.k.a. Mosey Truitt. Um, I guess that's reversed, but whatever. Um, so she taught Annie, her horse, to do it by just like holding up her hand in kind of a cupped shape fashion, like a queen wave. And then if the horse looked at her eye or her hand, she would click. And then if the horse moved her head in that direction, click. If the horse put her eye in her hand, click, until the horse was targeting her eye to the hand. And then she worked on duration, so where the horse would hold the eye in the hand, and then she could put the medication in there. And it worked beautifully with Zoe. I was able to put a bunch of gunky medication in her eyeball at liberty. Like, I didn't have a halter on her or anything. And she's just hanging out, and I cued her for it and stuck it in there, and she was totally fine with it. And then I cued her for it a few more times, and she was totally fine. She had no qualms about it. I think there's a video of it up somewhere, but I thought it was it was really cool. So things like that, um, if your horse is sensitive about the ears, you can teach that as well. And, you know, just break it all the way down. And I think that's where journaling comes in really handy and why I am so adamant that I'm getting myself some training journals, because you can physically sit down and write it out and say, okay... What does this behavior take? How far can I break it down? Because when you break it all the way down to the very, very itty bitty, teeny tiniest pieces, that's how you're going to go faster. When you have a plan and you are looking for smaller successes, then all of a sudden you're breezing through your training. And it's it's when you start skipping those and that you're waiting for too long to click or you're asking for too much that um, you start slowing down because the horse gets confused, they get discouraged, they don't understand or they get frustrated and you need to ensure that you are being fair to them because I really encourage you and I'm planning on doing a video on this soon actually, but get your clicker and uh, you know, I don't know, some rocks or something and get a friend who is as kooky as you are and be like, come here, I need to train you to do something. And so then try and train the human without words or body language or, you know, signing anything to them. So teach them to like, I don't know, scratch their head or I don't know, squat, you know, and you're just clicking them for the smallest movements in the right direction. And then they're going to sit there and go, okay, what did I just do? And then, you know, and you have to hand them a rock every time because it's, it's good training, you know, remember your reinforcement, but it, it'll help you understand that 
you know, you have to look for the small behaviors and then hand the clicker over to your friend and then have them do it to you. So I think it's a good experiment. And then you have a lot more empathy for your horse and you're like, oh my God, I have to, you know, actually break this way further down. And I don't know. I just think it plays a really big role. And I keep saying, and, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That is really annoying me now. <clears throat> but, you know, it, it it elucidates to you how complicated it can be when you don't have words <laughs> to be like, okay, I need you to file this paperwork now. You know, if you had to teach a horse to do it, it's gonna, it's gonna take a little bit more than that. So be kind and actually take the time to write it down. And I'm talking to me too, because it's, it just complicates everything when you don't have a plan and also come up with a few different plans, like for teaching hip targeting or something. Don't just come up with one way that you can teach it because if you get out there and it's not working for your horse, then you're going to be like, okay, well, where do we go from here? My horse just can't learn this thing. So be sure that you have some alternate ideas. Really brainstorm and think about how you could communicate it, how you could position your body and the horse's body, how you could utilize targets and things like that. So yeah, I think that that pretty much covers that. Just make sure that your horse is aware of healthcare behaviors that they need and being able to lead and things like that. So this is where we talk about cues. And one of you guys actually DM'd me when I was asking about, you know, what you wish you had known before you started positive reinforcement training uh, on Instagram, on my Instagram story. And one of you sent me a long DM that I will be referencing several times throughout this episode because I think they just said it really well, especially coming from another person that has been through it. Um, So on the topic of cues, they said, think before training a cue. Does this cue mean something already? Are they going to get this confused with something else? I.e. every time I touch you somewhere, it means smile. That would be very confusing. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to save this cue for a future behavior? So those are really important things to consider. This is the reason that I tell people not to use the sound for uh, their marker signal. It's a very common horse world sound, but that's the problem because other people will be using it and it can easily confuse your horse. So you want to make sure you have, you know, unique sounds and unique words that aren't going to come up in conversation. You also need to be sure that if you're using verbal cues that aren't just sounds, that you can make them the same way every single time. Because just for consistency's sake and making sure that you're very clear to your horse, like if you were to say, yes, but, you know, if your horse gives you a subpar behavior and you say, yes, you know, like the horse might not pick up that that was the marker signal. So make sure that you pick something that is really clear. And the same goes for cues. So if you say, I don't know, if like... What would it be? Okay, so if my um, cue for smile is a finger point from the ground up, like I'm point- motioning vertically, um, right? Yes. <laughs> and for back, it's the opposite. I'm pointing from behind me to forward and like motioning from back to front. And, you know, those cues are pretty close. And just about every time I cue Zoe to back up with that 
the hand gesture cue, she smiles first because it's confusing. And I thank this individual for helping me realize that. And now I, but I had, I've worked to transition it from the point to the verbal cue. And she got it really well there, or like she started really getting it down there for a while. But um, like I said, I just took a really long break from (laughs) working with them. I just, I no excuses. But anyway, so make sure it's not confusing. Make sure it doesn't already have a previous meaning. And be sure that it's not something you're going to want to use later. Like if you say, I don't know, if your cue for hip targeting is hip, but you also want to teach the horse to move their hip away from you, and you say hip, like it, it, you can't transfer it. You would have to say something else. Um, if you wanted to use the word away, to replace the hip for sending the hip away. Well, what if you want to move the shoulder away? You know, think about those things and what it's going to mean horse-wise, you know? So you just kind of have to plan things like that out. As far as the away thing goes, I actually like background processing and thinking about that one. And I think that actually could work. You could say hip for hip targeting and then say away and do like a pushing hand gesture, like pushing out away from you. And you could do it for the hip, and then you could um, also transfer it to the shoulder, and then the horse knows, okay, wherever they're making that gesture, whatever part of my body is what needs to go out on the circle, per se. So anyway, just wanted to clarify, that could work. I have shit in my throat. That was beautiful. Okay, so... That is pretty much wrapping up that little section of the basic behaviors. And I think that the last two topics we're going to talk about start with some behaviors to teach when you've lost inspiration and what do you do after you're, after teaching the tricks. So to the tricks question, I have to say, everything is a trick. Your horse, whether it looks pristine like a dressage test and you're doing pee off and passage, it's a trick. Like all of it is a trick to the horse. The horse is not able to distinguish, okay, this is, you know, professional work and this is for funsies. Um, There might be a different emotional attachment to each of those behaviors, but regardless to the horse, it's just a trick. It's something else they know that's on cue. So they're all tricks uh, just to be a semantic jerk here, but um, you can just absolutely get creative. You can teach Spanish walk. You can teach hip targeting. You can teach shoulder targeting. You can teach pushing them out and away from you. You can teach ear targeting. You can teach cheek targeting. You can teach forehead targeting. You can teach nose targeting to your hand with a closed, shut, unmoving mouth. You can teach them how to pick up all of their feet. You can teach them how to smile or how to back up under you while you stand, you know, spread eagled over to barrels. I've seen videos like that going around and I really want to do that. Like they put up two two big barrels that are the width of the horse and then, you know, a person stands with a leg on each barrel and then cue the horse to back between the barrels and then they get on and I I, I love it and I want to do it. But um, eventually I have to have a horse whose back I can sit on. <laughs> I might teach Zoe. Well, I have to acquire barrels also. I would like to teach Zoe, but um, I wouldn't be able to like sit on her back because kissing's fine, you know? But Anyway, so, you know, and I think that that also kind of ties into the some behaviors to teach when you've lost inspiration, because I'm right there with you currently quite uninspired. And 
it's it's such a weird paradox because I'm so inspired. Like I'm so into it. I'm taking as many online courses as I can while I'm on break until, you know, the spring semester starts for my grad program. So I, I'm like learning as much as I can, but I just don't want to be outside with the horses. And it I don't get it either, honestly. Like it's been beautiful here lately. Like the weather has been perfect and it's been sunny. And I find myself like wishing it was raining. So I had an excuse to actually be inside instead of like feeling guilty that I'm not outside. But I don't know what it is. It's just I just really burnt out, I think. But, um, you know, I think that the first step is not um, shaming yourself about losing your inspiration. It's a natural thing. Everything comes in cycles. And eventually the cycle will come back around and you'll be ready. Because if you lose inspiration and then you're like, oh my God, I'm the worst trainer ever. I suck. My horse probably hates me because I'm never out here. They've forgotten about me. They don't love me anymore. Um, You know, things like that. You're just going to make yourself feel worse and then you're not going to want to go out at all. So cut yourself some slack. Give it a break. Realize that horses are totally fine to hang out in the pasture as long as their needs are met. They've got food, water, shelter, roaming access. They can explore and they have 24-7 access to forage and buddies. So your horse is totally fine. They're just living it up being a horse. And when you're ready, they will be waiting for you. So I think... I think that's the first step. And then after that, you know, you can think about some really cool different things that you could teach. Like you can teach your horse to walk sideways. That's Zoe's favorite behavior at the moment. Um, You can teach them to lift a leg. You can teach them to trot in a circle around you or do a rollback turn. You can teach them to target all sorts of body parts. Um, to do a cone circle around you touching different targets and you can work up into the last section that I have for the basic behaviors here which is you can start working on behaviors that you'll need for riding so you have to be able to catch your horse you have to be able to halter them you have to be able to um, lead them and groom them tack them up and you know, some people like lunging, and I would not really recommend doing lunging the traditional way just because of the way it's set up. You could teach them to follow a target stick and do it the same way, just the whip is on the opposite side, and it's also not a whip, it's a target stick. Um, but then you can um, do things like that. You can work on all of the things you'll need to start riding, like getting lining up to the mounting block and which is where hip targeting really comes in handy. You can teach them to um stand <laughs> at the mounting block and you know let you put your leg over their back, all of those little things. Then when you're riding in the saddle, taking a couple steps, all of the different things, transferring your cues from the ground to the saddle and god, I keep saying and I'm so sorry. Oh my god, I'm annoyed AF about that. Take a break. (laughs) That was a gross sound. Okay. Anyway, so I think that that just about wraps up this episode. I had originally planned, and uh, I think I cut out the parts of the episode where I talked about it, but just in case I did not... Uh, I I thought I was going to talk about transitioning from traditional riding in this episode, but I'm actually going to cover that in next week's episode. So I've got questions such as, is it all or nothing? Or can you mix? What are the types of pressure? How do you start implementing it and not overlap with traditional and confuse the horse? How do you incorporate it into a traditional barn setting with traditional barn people? 
Um, you know, if you're working with a horse using negative reinforcement until now, how do you not confuse them? That's the same question as the first one, and I need to edit my document. <laughs> Things about dominance theory, the negative reinforcement brain, and what to do when it kicks in. And, you know, I'm not saying negative reinforcement brain as if it's a like horrible, awful thing that you need to always avoid. But I'm saying it as if you are an individual who would like to use positive reinforcement and your habits are kicking in from being trained traditionally and you don't want them anymore. So that's kind of that spiel. And then the week after that is going to be the troubleshooting episode. So that'll be part four and that'll conclude the series, hopefully, unless I get long-winded again and screw it up because I didn't mean to talk about Lima and the poison cue for as long as I did. Oops, my bad, because this has almost been two hours and that was only half of what I had intended to cover. It's my bad, my bad, my bad. So the troubleshooting episode is all about like, what can go wrong with the basics? What do I do if my horse doesn't get it or is not responding? Uh, trainer patience, what the horse's body language means, um, how they say no, what it looks like, what it means, what do you do? All of the things about food issues, like food anxiety, biting, frustration, things like that. So I just, I'll touch on all of that in the episodes to come. I hope that you guys are enjoying the series because I don't know why I am just like having a hard time doing anything. I took a long break in the middle of this episode for like an hour and watched Jackson Galaxy videos on working with feral cats because I had somebody ask me and I needed to review the video before I sent it to them. So I did. I took a 30 minute break and then I took an extra hour. (laughs) So it's currently 11.39. I have written down in my um, my planner, for the love of God, fucking go to bed before 11. And that has not happened. So, <laughs> you know, yelling at myself in my notes is not helping. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's been so hard to go to bed lately. I don't know why. I just, like, have so many things that I want to do. But I'm going to force myself to go to bed after this. So anyway, with that, guys, I hope that I covered some things that you are interested in and answered some of your questions. And I hope that if I haven't yet, I will get to them in the next two parts. Please be sure, if you have a YouTube channel, please, God, go look up Equitheory, just E-Q-U-I-T-H-E-O-R-Y, and look it up on YouTube and subscribe. I don't care if you never look at it, just subscribe (laughs) because I'm trying to, like, there's a certain watch time and subscriber count that it has to get to before it can be monetized. So if you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button because homegirl is is needing some money because I'm, I'm paying for the service that I make my podcast on. And, uh, I have not utilized it fully because I'm supposed to be pitching myself to sponsors and I have not done so. Um, But we do have some sponsors that will be coming up in the near future. So dun, dun, dun. So I think some really exciting stuff is about to come up, actually. Like there have just been some crazy coincidences and wild new developments that I'm trying really hard not to be like overly excited about. But I'm like low-key super excited (laughs) and I just don't want to will the universe into revoking it because they're like, okay, you got your happiness fill and then we're going to take that back. (laughs) Um, So because I want the actual event to fill that bar, you know, Um, but I I think there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff coming up here soon and I just I, I really can't wait to get into it and share it with you guys. And also another thing that I should say is I am developing a website for the podcast. It will have its very own website where you'll be able to look up all the merch and all that good stuff and learn about the Patreon, which by the way, oh my God, I forgot to say it earlier. Um, I refilmed the Patreon ad finally. Oh my God. Everyone clap, please. (laughs) And it took me so long to do that. And 
I finally did it. And then after that, I changed some of the benefits. But now a really cool thing that I think just everyone would really benefit from, because I'm benefiting from it, is the um, Discord server. So if you join our Patreon, you can pay $5 a month. That's the lowest tier. And it's like, just skip your cup of coffee one day, and then you'll have enough money. You know, just don't don't get that pumpkin spice, you know, no macchiato for you. <laughs> and join it, and then you'll have access to the Discord community. I was a total Discord noob and had no idea how to work it. And now it's probably one of my favorite apps on my phone because everyone on that app always has something to say and share. It's a very positive community. Everyone's trying to learn and better themselves and ask questions about their horses and everything. And then they just get feedback from everybody, myself included. And I I don't know. It's just the first app I check when I wake up in the morning because I just want to see what everybody said. Also, it's a little bit stressful because I feel like I'm these are my cats and I'm having to herd them all. And there's like a lot of them. And I'm like, okay, guys, okay, yep, I got to read everything that everybody says and make sure everybody's being nice and that nothing is going wrong. But the from the live Zoom meetings, uh, which you can access at the $10 tier and up, the the crew is just incredible. And I feel like I'm I'm starting to really get to know everyone. And I feel like these are these are my people. And then I start feeling really bad that I'm taking their money. But at the same time, I'm like, you're a trainer, you're a trainer, you got this. No imposter syndrome here. No. So anyway, I don't know. I just think the Discord server is really cool. And if you're a tech noob, don't worry about it. You just download the app and you'll have access to the link through Patreon. And then you can um, just join the server and then you can chat with everybody. There are a bunch of different channels about nutrition and health and behavior and training and random people stuff, mental health stuff, everything in between. So don't worry. There's also an introduction tab where everybody has introduced themselves. So you can feel free to read through that and get to know everybody and introduce yourself. And everybody is, for the most part, very welcoming and will welcome you in with loving open arms. It's just a beautiful thing that I've created. And I just, I don't know. I just, I really love the Discord server because everyone is so dope. And I've learned some stuff already from it. And it's been up for like three days. But anyway, I recorded that after, uh, or I recorded the Patreon ad update before (laughs) I did that. I did it like two days later and I was like, damn it. So I'm going to have to add that in there if it's not already. I actually don't know if it is or not. But anyway, it's still worth talking about the server because it's just I love it. And you can you can do it for the $5 a month tier and have access to all those lovely people um, or $10 tier and then join our live Zooms. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. I hope that you know, you learned something. I'm not going to do that thing where I say a thousand I hopes because it is in my nature for whatever reason. I don't know how to hang up the phone either. So, (laughs) but I guess just be sure to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at Jet Equitheory and Equitheory, all except for Twitter. And yeah, I think that's about it. Just be sure to keep up, join, enjoy, learn, all of the things. Um, anyway, all of the resources that I discussed in this episode will be available uh, in the description. And if that is too much effort for you or you cannot find it on your app, just visit jetequithery.com and have a browse around. I pay money for a whole year. It's, it's quite a hefty sum for old Gil uh, to have that website up. So please God use it because it is there for you. And also me because marketing. But, you know, I didn't have to make all of the tabs that I made. But I just wanted a place where everybody could just go to one place and look up different 
topics you know that they wanted to see so anyway i'm gonna stop talking now and let you guys go about your day okay thank you for listening Ugh. also god here i go again leave a review if you would on whatever app you're on if it allows it just check and then see if you can leave a review because that would mean the world to me even if you just rate it um i don't care <laughs> it helps the alg- algorithm and then it helps more people hear the podcast and then it helps more people come to positive reinforcement and um whether they switch or not, you know, it's it's an alternative tool in the toolbox and hopefully a step in the right direction in helping other people better understand their animals and create a better relationship with them. Knowledge is power. Okay, now I'm going to be done. So thank you guys so much for listening and I will catch you guys next Tuesday. Okay, bye.